said, you're going to be the first woman to break 220 to your breast show. That didn't make any sense to me because I was nowhere near that. And it took 10 years before I did that. But that's exactly what happened. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, today we are blessed to be joined by two incredible human beings, Caroline Burkle and Rebecca Sony, who also happened to be Olympic athletes turned entrepreneurs and business partners. In 2015, they co-founded Rise Athletes with an ambitious goal to create a community for cultivating, creating, and discussing things that would uplift them, their peers, and the next generation of athletes. But creating something like Rise did not happen overnight. Rather, it was the culmination of decades of experience as competitive athletes that inspired and led them to serve some of the best and brightest competitors who are preparing mentally, physically, emotionally to compete on the world stage. And it's not just a worthwhile goal. I love how they are going about accomplishing it. But like I said, these kinds of achievements don't happen overnight. They require years of hard work, dedication, commitment, talent, skill, preparation, coaching, and probably most importantly, a willingness to learn. But a little bit of background about Caroline and Rebecca. Caroline grew up in an athletic family. Her mother was a tennis pro from Santa Barbara, California. Her dad was a collegiate swimmer from Kentucky. Rebecca also grew up in an active family, but her parents had immigrated to the U.S. from Turkey. Both Caroline and Rebecca's families were dedicated to their success, but wanted to make sure that regardless of the sport they chose, the activities they chose, that whatever they did, they simply gave it their all put their whole heart into it, and stuck with it. Now, fast forward to 2008. It's the Summer Olympics. Caroline had earned the opportunity to compete on Team USA as part of the 4 by 200 meter relay, where she put her years of hard work and dedication and sacrifice to the test and earned a bronze medal. Rebecca had also earned a spot on the same 2008 team, where she would also put her years of hard work and sacrifice to the test and earn two silvers and a gold medal, as well as a world record in the 200-meter breaststroke. Four years later, she would break her own record, becoming the first woman in history to break two minutes and 20 seconds in the 200-meter breaststroke. Ultimately, Caroline retired from swimming in 2010 and put her incredible creative skills to work completed a degree in merchandising from FITM, the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. Then in 2011, she moved back to Kentucky to start a health and wellness business. Rebecca continued competing through 2012 Summer Olympics, earning two gold medals and another silver, and officially retired from swimming in 2014. I am honored to host them on this show. 
because in addition to learning about all of their achievements and their origin story and all of those great things and what they're doing with Rise, we cover a wide range of topics, including the importance of managing expectations and focusing on the process and progress one experiences instead of the outcome, why it's critical to manage emotions, how emotions and how you manage them are in your control, and why we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. And one powerful thing that Caroline said that I just loved is how you manage your emotions is yours to own. Just because I'm laughing doesn't mean I'm happy. Be okay with being yourself and never apologize. You are allowed to be who you are unapologetically. There is so much more in this episode that we are going to cover, and I don't want to really uh, reveal it all here. So I'm confident you're going to take a ton of notes. So bust out your pen and paper, take those notes and brace for impact. All right, Caroline Burkle and Rebecca Sony, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Super pumped to have you on. I'm excited about this interview, not just because the two of you are both successful Olympic athletes, turn entrepreneurs, high five to you, uh, but because of what you are doing and the way that you're doing it. And before we get too deep into our conversation about your stories and entrepreneurship and what you're doing, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your families and, and what it was like growing up. You guys come from two very different backgrounds. And uh, it's amazing uh, what you guys have both accomplished coming from two totally different sets of parents, obviously, and, and different backgrounds. So maybe we'll start with you, Rebecca. Tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in your family. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I grew up in New Jersey and a um, small town about an hour from the city and uh, grew up with a Hungarian heritage. My parents are both from, both from uh, Romania, but grew up in a Hungarian culture. We spoke Hungarian, we ate Hungarian food and kind of followed the cultures and traditions of that. So I grew up with the, you know, foreigner parents in a small town America kind of lifestyle when, um, you know, especially in a very diverse place, like suburb of New York, it's, uh, just, there's so many different cultures and, and different, you know, people, that uh, everyone kind of was differently similar, but different. And um, I started swimming when I was 10 years old. But as far as, you know, as far as that goes, my parents and my family, my, I, my older sister swam as well. And we were both very self-motivated. We both loved it. My parents never had to force us to go to practice. And, and um, they were always very, very supportive, taking us to meets, waking us up at 3.30 a.m. to go to practice. <laughs> and... Um, so yeah, that was like the general lifestyle that we grew up with. We, you know, always loved uh, exploring the outdoors, going skiing in the winters, at least until swimming became very serious. And um, and that was the majority of, of what we did until swimming took over and started traveling for meets and, and all that. And, and yeah. Where does, the, where does the athletic gene come from? Uh, it's my family was... They're all very active. My parents both grew up in Eastern Europe and they would go skiing in the Alps and hike all the time. And so we just had that growing up instilled within us. They weren't, they never played 
strict sports necessarily, but they're all very outdoorsy. So the outdoorsiness um, is probably where it started. And then my sister was the one who found swimming first. She was born during a hurricane. So her the joke was she was like in the water from the beginning. Um, so she was the one that started it. And eventually I joined her having two kids in the same sport was helpful for the parents. Now, is it um, just the two of you, you and your sister? Yep. And so were you guys competitive in the water against each other? Yeah, we definitely were. Luckily, we swam different strokes and different events. Uh, at the same time, couldn't help but be competitive to some degree. I yeah. wanted to be as good as my big sister. She did not want her little sister to be as good as her. And, uh, you know, she's an amazing athlete in her own right. She swam at Texas a for a couple of years, realized it wasn't quite satisfying to her. So she started cycling and has done an Ironman. And oh, wow. she's just, you know, she's great at training and more longer distances. So Ironman was a good fit for her. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we both were very athletic our entire lives. Now, Caroline, you, obviously your parents didn't, uh, immigrate here from Turkey. (laughs) Uh, and, and you come from a very, uh, sports oriented family from the get go, right? I mean, you were practically born in a pool from what I understand. Yeah. So actually my mom was a tennis player. So she played pro tennis for a while. And then my dad was a swimmer. So he swam in college. And then my mom played tennis in college. Uh, but she's a California girl. He was a Kentucky boy. Um, and then, so what happened was their coach at Santa Barbara left to go to IU he was at IU and then they met and lived happily after. <laughs> there we all are. Uh, so I came from a background that was definitely um, similar to Rebecca's as far as active lifestyle goes. You know, growing up, um, I have two younger brothers, but really only one that was that I was close with, Clark, because he was just a year and a half younger than I was. Uh, but we grew up in Kentucky, but our family's from all over the United States. So we grew up honestly traveling a lot and Colorado and Arizona and New Mexico and Florida and California. And, you know, like my parents did a really good job of taking us everywhere and letting us see the world and everything as young kids, just so that they could visit their parents too. is probably a good excuse. (laughs) Uh, So we were always outside. I honestly do not remember staying inside longer than an hour when we were kids. Like we would, you know, you're just outside, like, skateboarding and playing on your like Barbie Jeep or whatever I did, you know, so you're, you're active, you're active souls. And I think that my parents, you know, we were raised that way. Like I was in the stroller on the tennis court with my mom while she taught, like as a kid, like no Mm -hmm. questions asked, like you do what mommy does kind of thing. (laughs) And uh, so that was just, that's, that's our, our life and upbringing. And they were similar to Rebecca's. My parents were so just, motivating with what we did. And honestly, I never remember either of my parents ever being like, you have to do this. Yeah. Like they were always yeah. like asking lots of questions, like, or like, well, it's up to you, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> figure it out. And we were like, what? <laughs> but I think, you know, that's their attitude and their go getter. So they were focused on their stuff. And so I don't think that they even, it wasn't a question to, mm-hmm. be, you know, make it feel like mandatory. It's like, do what you want to do, but you better do it with passion and, and you know, your grit, your full heart and whatever that is, then we'll be happy for you. So I do remember that. Um, at what point did you, at what point did you guys realize, and you both can answer this, but at what point did you guys realize that swimming was your thing? Like swimming would be the thing. 
I think mine was when I made junior nationals in the hundred breaststroke reps. <laughs> Rev the breaststroker, and I was like kind of just dilly dallying around, and I made it. And I remember being like, "Oh my god, I do not want to go to that meet." Like I was so mad because I had all the, all of a sudden it was like, "Oh, this is you have to be serious now." I have to like train a lot, and like you know. And so I was like running cross country and playing tennis and swimming, like you know, going to like four practices a week, and then I made the cut, and my coach is like time to decide. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> all right. So I went with swimming and that's just my story with that. I didn't even go to my first junior national meet. This is before, like there's not junior nationals. Well, there is, there are, but they've kind of moved them around now. But um, I didn't even go for like a mm-hmm. year. I just made the cut and then I started to take it a little more seriously, a lot more slowly than my peers. So uh, a lot slower. Yeah. So that's my story. What about you, Reb? For me, I, I'm not really sure. I think given that my sister was already very into it when I started and then, you know, we were both progressing. It was just from the beginning. I did gymnastics when I was younger before swimming. I did a little bit of tennis, but that was all done before I joined my first swim team. So pretty much from the get-go, um, not necessarily that, hey, this is taking me places and I'm going for the Olympics. And it's just, we just put so much time into it. We were driving an hour to the pool and an hour back every day. So with that in mind, there was no time for anything else. So yeah. it was pretty much full on from from the beginning, but never you know forced or really serious. It was just a lot of time. And we both loved being there, my sister and I. So... That's what we did. And then Reb, I mean, uh, Caroline, when, when I was prepping for this conversation, I you know, happened upon an article, an older one from uh, 08, where you were talking a little bit about your mom and, and how she is the most influential person in your life. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about what you, how, how she's been the most influential person in your life and, and uh, how she's impacted you and what she's helped you believe that you're capable of achieving. Yeah, totally. You know, my mom, just growing up, I think watching her be an athlete, but also watching her raise us in a way that was, you know, she came, her background, both of my parents have interesting backgrounds, but my mom's background was a little tougher family wise. And I think that she really saw how much she wanted to be a mother to us. And in a way, you know, she knew that having a family that all had goals and had, the ability to just show up and be happy doing what you're doing was so important because mm-hmm. in her upbringing, that was came a little bit, you know, that was tougher. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that was something that I saw her really take, you know, take us under her wing and make sure that we were very happy doing what we were doing and not, it wasn't about anything else. And mm-hmm. I think that one of the best things about my mom is I literally do not remember. I mean, she was an elite athlete. and I do not remember a race that went by that she wasn't like, oh my gosh, you looked so great out there. And I was like, <laughs> mom, I just added 10 seconds, you know, or like something ridiculous. And she was just like, my dad's a little more serious, you know, like he's, he was a swimmer. So he knew, you know, like what was good and not good. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. you know, good, good try, better luck next time kind of thing. And my dad and my mom's so like, I thought it was great. And I was like, no, it wasn't. But thank you for your optimism, you know? But I think that her having that ability to just keep it light and fun and like, oh, what do you want to do? You get your nails done? Like after prelims of a session. And I'm like, mom, you know, for, for an athlete, she just, she kept it in perspective and she always kept it in perspective. And I think that that's something that I have obviously struggled with and done well with over the years. Mm. 
rightfully so, but she's been able to be a resource for me um, in that way too. But I just, I really like her attitude and her intuition regarding just the reality of it. Like yeah. it's sport, it's amazing, but like it's an analogy for life. <laughs> like mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it is actually, it's, you know, that's, that's what it is. So yeah. if you can't see it as that, you might as well get out. And yeah. I think that was what I recognized from her the most. I love what you just said about the importance of keeping perspective and about how your mom taught you that. But what are some of the ways that both of you throughout your career as athletes and now as entrepreneurs have been working to maintain that perspective, even in the midst of struggle? I think we place things into categories really easily. I think we place things into categories like, you know, how does swimming relate to entrepreneurship? How does this relate to this? And how does this relate to this? And while it's absolutely true, I think it's more the process and the journey. And I think, you know, Reb's taught me this as well. And, you know, it's more about the actions that you're doing over the results of something. And I think that that's definitely what I've started to recognize has been something that was helpful for me in my swimming career. And it's helpful for me now. It's mm-hmm. just to focus on, you know, what are you doing that is going to get you there and take each day as that. And it sounds obviously very cliche. Mm-hmm. Like we can all say, trust the process. But I mean, what else is there to do? Like if, mm-hmm. if you focus so hard on the outcome of your race, you will likely be disappointed because yeah. your expectation is already set in your mind. Mm-hmm. It's different than, you know, wanting something or visualizing something. But like if you have to have something, have to, yeah. it will likely be different. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's mm-hmm. the biggest thing that I've learned as mm-hmm. I've gone forward in entrepreneurship that is relatable to swimming. Oh my gosh, that's that's awesome. That that was that was awesome. And, it's a and, hard lesson. I am yeah. still working yeah. through it 100%. I, I was talking uh, to this guy from uh, the Harvard Business Review. He was on my show a few weeks ago. And he wrote a book called Psyched Up. And it's all about pre-performance rituals and everything. And at one point, I, for, I can't remember if it was actually during the interview or if it was off, off the record, so to speak. But we were, we were talking about carrots and sticks and, you know, incentive, incentives, you know, and, and sometimes whether you're in business or you're an athlete or whatever you do, I, sometimes I feel like I'm getting beat by the carrots and the sticks, you know, like all of these things just pounding me. And they're not necessarily things that I want, but they're things that I, they're, they're, they're have tos instead of want tos. And I think that we are caught up in a society today where we think we have to do something or have to be some way instead of wanting to do something or wanting to be some way. But before we get on to that further, I'd love to hear Reb's perspective on um, on, on perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, you know, maybe when I was swimming, I didn't have as much insight into it as I do now that I've you know, thought about it a lot more, but at least as it pertains to my life now, both entrepreneurship and looking back on athleticism and athletic career, I think that, you know, just having the 
awareness, I guess, to, to notice what it is that you are experiencing instead of getting swept into whatever it is that you're experiencing, but taking a step back and noticing the bigger picture, um, whether it's a bad practice or something throwing you off, or, you know, we just get so sucked into it immediately instead of being able to zoom out and, and see the whole big picture. So I think that maintaining that ability to zoom out to to really see, you know, we focus so much on, let's say, something bad happened. We're going to focus on the drama and the negative um, and completely shut out all the positives in our lives. And so, you know, we've all had that experience where something happens maybe to somebody else and it makes you reflect on your own life and where you're at and just like, wow, I actually am very lucky for all the things that I do have in my life. And I can't believe that I take them for granted so often. So maintaining that big picture is huge for, for perspective on mm-hmm. my end. I take myself way too seriously. In fact, like even during this, during the few minutes that we've been having this conversation, when I've fumbled on, on questions or whatever, um, I'm in my, in my mind, I'm saying like, you're such an idiot. Like, you know, you can be more articulate, come on, you know? And I think that we all take ourselves a little too seriously. I, as I said, I certainly do because I want to do a good job. I want to make this, for instance, in this one moment, I want to make this interview helpful, not only to listeners, but maybe to you guys yourselves, because you identify or realize something that you hadn't realized before. And the reason I bring that up is because you are charged with a responsibility of, of raising these new athletes, right? And who, who, and developing these Olympic mindsets in them and championing them onto their greatness. And there's a a lot of pressure in that, not only for yourselves, but also for them to perform. And I'd love to learn a little bit how you integrate humor into that and laughter and lightening the load. And I know, Caroline, I mean, you know, from social media, I can see that you really value humor and not necessarily taking yourself too seriously all the time. So how do you coach that? That's a really good question because I talk with Rebecca about this all the time. I'm like, you know, like just because I'm laughing doesn't mean that I'm happy. And I think that that's what I always tell my athletes too, is like how you cope with things and how you manage your emotions is yours to own. And that's mm-hmm. your individual quality, your characteristic, your trait. But it's just, as Reb said, zooming out and seeing what is actually going on, you know, and being able to just be okay with being yourself and not apologizing for that. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, you know, it's a very common thing in that generation worried about what is perceived of them. And, um, you know, taking things very seriously or pleasing others, the parents or coaches or themselves or their peers is a high priority. It's pleasing, 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 pleasing. And so appearing a certain way is very, it's, it's at the forefront. And so I think that it's just one thing that I stress a lot with them that I always let them know that I'm working on too, because I think them knowing that it's, it's, it's an everlasting thing, you know, like you don't just <laughs> figure it out, yeah. you know, but it's like that you're allowed to be who you are and mm-hmm. unapologetically. You don't have to ask permission for your own like humor or your own seriousness or whatever. Like just as long as you can keep it in perspective and yeah. understand 
that, okay, I may be like laughing and goofing around at this competition or whatever, but like deep down, maybe I am really insecure and nervous and like, okay, that's okay. Let's talk that out. You know? So like how you are on the surface isn't necessarily what's going on inside. And it's okay to be a little bit of both. It's okay. You don't have to be one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to like have this facade and that is the answer. And I think that that's, that's something that I'm working on with them too, is because they feel that they have to portray themselves a certain way mm-hmm. in order to be legitimate. Mm-hmm. In that. And I don't know if that made any sense. It's kind of a complicated yeah. dance, around, dance around the topic uh, thing that's very individual to different people. So, you know. I, I think it I think it also I mean you, you something you just said made me think about the importance of belief and and believing in one's capability and in one's worth. And and I I emailed you back yesterday, Rebecca, and I, I mentioned that, you know, there's all this talk about, you know, why having a why. Um, but I actually think that even before you can have a why or a what, you need to feel worthy of a why or a what. And, and that starts with belief. And one of my mentors is a guy who is very into words. I mean, he, he studies words and the, the origin of words. And one of the words he shared with me recently that blew my mind and is a very powerful word is, is the word believe. And the word believe, that the suffix to that word leave means love. And so when you believe in yourself, you are loving who you are created to be and what you are capable of doing. And that just went, that changes everything, you know? And I'd love to learn a little bit about who in your life, non-family, if, if possible, but it could be family if, if you'd rather go that route too. I won't limit you. I won't put you in a box. But who was the first person that helped you believe that you were capable of accomplishing great things? I'd say for me, the first one that comes to mind was one of my, one of my earlier coaches, uh, you know, being an athlete, our coaches have huge influence on us. We're with them all the time when we're not at school. And, and I just remember feeling that beyond what I thought I was capable of, because I, when I was young, I I don't, can't remember ever sitting down and thinking, what am I capable of? But I always knew what he thought I was capable of. I always knew that he saw a whole lot more in me than I did or even, you know, cared to pause and think about at the time. So I was just a kid, but, um, but absolutely my first coach would be the one that, that came to mind as far as that. And, and almost in a way that it took a lot of pressure off of me <laughs> because, okay, like I trust you. If you say that this is possible, then I'm not really going to stress about it too much. Of course, there's a little bit involved, but, mm-hmm. but it, it just, you know, I trusted in him and he believed in me and, and it just kind of worked, I guess. Was there, was there something he said to you? Like, did he, did he ever pull you aside and like speak directly to your potential? He definitely did later in my high school career. And, and it was a moment that shaped the rest of my career, even into the Olympics. And my final race was a result of the words that he said when I was 15, 10 years ago, before 10 years before I raced that race. Um, when, but at that point, we'd already had that kind of trust and belief relationship. But the words that he said were, you know, based on 
talking about swimming, but I was a junior breaststroker and, and I had swum a race at a meet. It wasn't particularly good, but he pulled me aside after that race and, and with a very serious look on his face, which was rare for him, <laughs> he said, you're going to be the first woman to break 220 to your breaststroke. That didn't make any sense to me because I was nowhere near that. And it took 10 years before I did that. But that's exactly what happened. And it was one of those things that was so far from the truth at the moment that I just was like, in my head, thought, you're crazy and walked away. Yeah. You know, I just went about my the rest of my meet. But yeah. uh, it came back, that phrase, and it stuck with me. And even after my first Olympics, I was close, but didn't quite do that time. And uh, it was the main reason that I went for a second Olympics. And so it had a huge impact on my life. So did that fuel your ability to work, though? Like when, when you were thinking about that phrase, did, did that kind of replay on a loop in your mind as you were just putting forth that effort day after day after day? Yeah. In my later career, once it was close, once yeah, yeah. it was very possible, uh, that's when it, it absolutely did. I mean, it was, it popped into my head when I was waking up early and going to swim outside in, in the winter in California, which gets cold. Like it's 40 degrees on the pool deck and you have to be running out in your swimsuit to the pool. Um, so yeah, it came up it popped up all the time when your friends are doing something fun on the weekend. It's like, I can't, I got to go to bed and wake up early. And so, yeah, it, it, it definitely became the fuel. It took years though. Like I didn't even revisit that thought for several years after it was put into my planted in my head. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How about you, Caroline? Who was the first non-family member to really believe, to show you and believe and help you believe in what you were capable of achieving? Um, well, first of all, I just have to comment on Rev's comment. because So when I was younger, I used to go to swim camps with her and her sister. Well, her sister mainly. <laughs> and I remember her sister saying, like, my little sister's really good. <laughs> and you know so it's just really funny to know like you know as a little girl and then I watched I didn't compete in 2012 but I was there watching my brother and I remember watching like from the stands and you know when you're a competitor you don't really watch from the stands that much and I remember watching her break 220 and I was just, like in tears I was like oh my god her sister was right <laughs> it's oh like you gosh. just all the pieces get put together you know it's so funny but so and I was like really emotional in 2012 so it's like super emotional but um for me it was very similar to Rebecca's um it was my coach, Mike DeVore from my club team. Um, same thing, planted seeds. You are going to be the next woman to do what Janet Evans did short course. Like he saw, I think for some reason he saw ability in short course for me. I don't know why. I don't know if my walls were, I don't, I don't know. I guess I had good flip turns. I don't <laughs> know. But for freestyle, like a 500 or 200 or whatever, um, he was just, adamant that that was happening. And I just did the same thing Rev did. And I think something to note was it wasn't necessarily the thing that he was telling me. It was the belief and the feeling that I was being supported mm -hmm. and that somebody believed in me and that I was significant and I was contributing. And I was... It's like all of those things that now I realize were things mm -hmm. and that I was actually a part of something bigger than just the time on the scoreboard yeah. um, and that he would care for me and support me no matter what. And I think 
my club coach was fantastic in that way. And I found, I mean, obviously I know Rebecca's was too. So I think that's a huge thing to have that impressionable experience. And that's what we seek to provide with our athletes in a different way. It's like, we believe in you, period. Like there is belief coming from us. And Mm -hmm. regardless of the outcome, you know that you have somebody in your corner. And I think that goes a long way Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. a teenager. So in your experiences working with these kids today, what, what inhibits them from believing in themselves? I think right now, more than ever, comparison. There's always someone out there doing something better. Mm-hmm. And I think that that causes a lack of belief in, in yourself. And, and I think it's not just for that age. It's for anybody. It happens mm-hmm. to me all the time. It happens mm-hmm. to people I know all the time. Well, someone says doing that. You know, someone says doing that. I'm not there. I'm not good enough at that. And it's that's a human condition. I mean, that's normal. Mm-hmm. Normal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, just to add to what you were saying, because that, there's that whole quote from Theodore Roosevelt that comparison is the thief of joy. And I totally agree with that. And, they, and I was thinking about this the other day, that if comparison is the thief of joy, then admiration is the thief of progress. Because just simply admiring someone doesn't actually get you to accomplish anything. You know, and mm-hmm. I think like, uh, as a as an entrepreneur myself, my main gig is as a financial advisor, and you know I'm, I'm a podcaster and a motivational speaker. And there's all kinds of people in that realm doing things on a much bigger scale than I am, and I admire them and I admire what they're doing. But unless I'm allowing that admiration to fuel my fire, then I'm not actually accomplishing anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a way, you're putting them on a pedestal, and by doing so, you say that I'm not as good as you. And now that you're on that pedestal, you're forever going to be on yeah. that pedestal. And right. it's definitely something that I notice within swimming as well. When there's a clear best swimmer in this race, whether it's a Michael Phelps or you know someone that's Katie Ledecky way ahead of the field, and it, it, you can tell which competitors see them on the pedestal and and then you can tell the ones that just don't care that there's a pedestal and I'll try my hardest until I can catch you. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. You actually made me think about just now what you just said about... um, the Winter Olympics, which I'm, I'm sure you both watched. I'm sure you guys have friends that competed. But you made me think about two things. One, Rebecca, I know that you know Dr. Jim Affermal, and I've got that book that you're quoted on, <laughs> on the back yeah. here. He was, um, yeah. he was on my show uh, last year, and, and uh, we've stayed in touch. And after that conversation, I was so inspired by what, one of the things that he said, which was, go for the gold, don't settle for silver. And I actually made these bracelets that say that. Um, 
go for the gold, don't serve for silver. It motivated, it was, it resonated with me, but you know what? I didn't really know why I didn't, um, I didn't really quite understand. Okay. Yeah. Go for the gold. Don't serve. That seems like an obvious thing. Right. Um, but I didn't really understand it until the winter Olympics. And, and what you just said reminded me of this because do you remember watching the women's super G? Did you guys watch the women's super G at all? There was, this, I didn't, oh my, you gotta I watched go curling and bobs <laughs> and half pipe. <laughs> you have got to go watch this and you have got to go make all of your athletes watch this. There's very important lessons here. Women's super G, this woman from Austria ends up like crushing the competition. Lindsay Vaughn's long gone. This woman from Austria is the, is going to be, she's the gold medal winner. You know, everybody's congratulating her, giving her hugs up on the top of the mountain is this woman from the Czech Republic who was competing in two different sports in, in the Olympics. One of which was this alpine skiing event, and then what the other one was this racing snowboarding uh, event, and and she, the, she was like in twenty sixth place in the Olympics, and she was on the top of this mountain in twenty sixth place, and she won gold medal. She came down, and she won the gold, and the her the. The expression of her on the on the bottom of this mountain at the end of this race is she's just dumbfounded. She's like, "What? What just happened?" Like you know, and it just is like you know what she wasn't worried about the person behind in front of her, that girl that had you know she didn't. She was just focused on winning her race, and I think that for myself, I'm like, man, I need to just focus on winning my race, you know, and and this mountain. This one moment, this one event is my gold medal moment. I'm not worried about anything else. I'm just worried about giving it my gold medal best. And it, it, NBC did a really great thing on this, this lady. Her name is Esther or something. Um, Pearl. Esther Pearl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, just a really powerful thing. So I, I'd be curious to know how you guys are coaching these kids, not only to be aware of... It's really a self-awareness thing, right? It's for ourselves. It's for the people that we're coaching. It's about making sure that they're self-aware, that they're present in that moment, but also that they're not celebrating too early. We've seen many times where people have celebrated success a little too early, only to have it stolen out from under them. Unless you're insane bolt. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Like fist pumping with like 20 meters to go. (laughs) I'm just kidding. yeah, I think that, I mean, there, there's so much to it, but it's, it's just, I mean, the way that you described it too, talking about Esther and the Super G's, I think, you know, being in 26th place, it removes a bit of expectation. And I know from my own swimming days, I loved racing in like the underdog position when, when I was not, you know, suspected of winning or being the one that was going to, you know, be in the target. So it just, it frees you from that expectation and, and allows you to, you know, I, I do teach my athletes often about letting go, which is a huge topic and it's relevant in every aspect of our lives. But in the case of performance, you know, letting go of both trying to control 
and, and, and overthink every detail of your race, letting go so that you kind of release the, the grip, death grip on what you're trying to do and just let it happen because you put in the training and, and, you know, that allows you to find your, your flow state instead of, you know, if you're trying to force something, you never quite tap into that in the zone that all the athletes, you know, talk about experiencing time to time. And, and she just from, you know, even though I didn't watch it from your description when she finished and she's dumbfounded, you know, that yes. that's a clear sign that in the zone, you, you had gotten into this, you know, other dimension when it just took over and, and it's not just, you know, a random coincidence, but it's a result of both all the things that you put into it, all the training and, and also, you know, a certain level of fascination with the thing that, with the idea that she was there in two different sports. She was there as a snowboarder and as a skier, which, you know, we see all the time. So, you know, let's take it to a, an organization that's looking for hiring people outside of their own you know, specialties because they bring something new to the table. They're not already locked into all these things that they can't do. They know the limitations because they've been here so long. They know what they can't do. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of athletes and, and all of us have these ideas of, I can't do this. I can't do that. I know that I can't because I've been here long enough to know what's possible and not possible. So perhaps there was a lack of lack of restraint, mm -hmm. <laughs> lack of restriction, mm -hmm. self-imposed restrictions mm -hmm. that that um, we put on ourselves and just a combination of those things that came together at a certain right moment. I love that. You know, pressure is a privilege. And uh, I heard that from Eli Manning once. And, you know, there's also a, pre a, a privilege of not having the pressure, so to speak, you know, and just going out there and just skiing your best race, you know, or, or having your best meeting, you know, and, and there's a lot of value in that. You know, did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Caroline? No, I mean, she nailed it with that. I think one of the things that comes up for me when I, when I coach athletes to, and mentor athletes as well is that to force yourself into a single role is like killing off the other mm -hmm. parts of you that are there. And mm -hmm. I know that um, I really, I tend to use a lot of, of like, <laughs> like Brene Brown style teachings and what I talk about with them about like, it's okay to have more than one thing that you want to do, you know, cause a lot of athletes are like, but I can't be this good at this. If I'm like focusing on this and I'm like, okay, well, that's your belief. And mm -hmm. that's what you've told yourself. It's a story you've told yourself. And mm -hmm. so I think, um, all of us have a side of us that is creative. And I think that when you, you like because every single thing in the world is creative. I don't care if it's a spreadsheet or if it's a tree, <laughs> like it mm -hmm. is to somebody. Mm -hmm. And so everyone's trying to fit in these boxes. And I think it's just important that the athletes know that they can go for what they want to go for and still be something else as well. Yeah. Like it doesn't yeah. mean that you have to kill off every other part of you to be yeah. successful. Totally at one thing. And we're going to talk about identity in a second because transitioning from something you've worked your whole entire life for into something new and having to reinvent yourself is incredibly challenging. And you guys are in a great position to help these kids navigate through some of that in advance, um, you know, through your own experience. But before we go there, you know, you mentioned Reb that your coach had told you uh, that you would be the first woman to break 220. And incidentally, this morning, I'm like, you know, right before the interview, I'm like, 
gosh, I wonder, I wonder what the history of the world records are for the 220, the long course that you swam and then you broke, you helped, you broke the record like two days in a row. <laughs> and, and I don't exactly know exa- where I'm going to go with this question, but I was curious about the history. So I looked it up. The first recorded world record time for, for uh, women was in 1921 when a woman from Germany swam 338. And then 17 years later, the first woman to break three minutes was a girl from the Netherlands who swam 258. And then fast forward to 2012, and you break the record, you swim 220, and then, two, and then 219. So the thing that's, that's crazy to me is the water's the same, <laughs> the distance is the same. So what in the hell makes that possible? Yeah, that's such an interesting idea because if we follow that trend, if we graph it out, let's say time versus years that have gone by, it's a very noticeable decline in time. So where, how far is it going to go? How is it possibly, you know, being that we were both there, we were both racing, we were both training to the peak of our abilities. We put 20 years into being the athletes that we were, we utilized the, you know, nutrition and the best weightlifting programs. And we had the best of the best and we performed at that level that we performed at. And even since we both retired, the kids have been going faster than we are, you know, it just keeps progressing. So how far can it actually go? You know, <clears throat> and it's a very interesting question. Um, as for, you know, what makes the difference? I, I think, um, obviously it's continued to keep getting faster, but just, you know, the progression of sports between, you know, the technologies, the suits that we're wearing, but also the, the more time that goes on, the more research into how people are training and different training atmospheres. And, and, you know, just even in our own lifetimes, especially in women's sports, you know, women are able to compete in college now where there was a time when women's swimming didn't exist in college. And, and not only that, but there was a time when athletes stopped after college. There was no such thing as, you know, swimming after college. Mm-hmm. So you, you just have to go and get a job and move on with your life. So mm-hmm. a lot of, um, I'm curious, I'd be curious to see the ages on everybody, you know, on those oh, yeah. records, because I would guess they would all be 21 and under. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it, the, just the lifespan of the athlete has progressed, technologies have progressed and training, um, you know, knowledge of training and, and, but also, you know, the back to the carrot and the stick once even, even Michael Phelps dangled a carrot for everybody else. And eventually yeah. they did catch up and their mm-hmm. times did catch up. And, and, you know, back in 2009, we had a surge of technology with our swimsuits that all of a sudden they had these, you know, really high performance materials that, you know, the first time I put it on and just dove in the water without much effort, I was like underwater at the other side before I even put in an effort. Like the suit was swimming for me. It was insane. I don't even know how, but in 2009 world championships in Rome, every single world record is broken by a lot in some cases. And once those suits were banned and we kind of took a step back in the suit technology and, you know, the question was, is anyone ever going to touch those world records again? And a lot of people were, you know, skeptical, but 
those were just carrots dangled. And eventually we, we start to accept that that's, you know, I can do that. I can go beyond that. Um, but, but it is, you know, how far is it going to go yeah, <laughs> at yeah. a certain point? Like you just can't swim a 200 breath stroke in a minute and a half. Yeah, like, right. I don't, I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe, I don't know, but it's, it's pretty wild. Well, I mean, I was, as you, as you're talking about all the technology, I'm thinking when I, when I was writing that question down, I'm like, it's swimming. How much innovation can there be in swimming? It's just, but there totally is. I mean, like there's like, there's anything can be innovated. Like this, this, the stroke style, you know, the strength training programs and the nutrition that this, I did you know, I hadn't even thought about all that, but yeah, like innovation, unless you're the only way to disrupt anything, whether it's a world record or uh, some sort of business entity is to innovate or you're going to, Add yourself out. Yeah, go ahead, Caroline. Well, and that's the same thing. You know, I was reading, there's this like really cool book at one of the coffee shops in Hermosa Beach and it's called Surf Shacks. And it's like this big, thick book. And like you would think reading through it, it's just like cool pictures of surfers and surfers' homes and all these like minimalist things. And But there's these like truth bombs that are dropped in there and they're so (laughs) good. And, you know, one of them was one of this, one of these surfers that, you know, makes boards and literally lives out of his airstream. And it's this beautiful minimalist place. And he wrote, you know, people are always, there's no original idea anymore. Like no matter what it is, and there's nothing that's just brand new, you know, like everything is a building off of something else. And I think, you know, even like five years ago, I would get so feisty and competitive about that. I'm like, oh, this is doing this and we should be doing this. And, you know, and it was like, I was so angry about it. And even now I get like a spurt of like, hold up, you know, but now it's like the wheels turn in business life, you know, that's like, okay, that has been done. How can you do it better? Mm. And it doesn't mean Mm. that that person's not going to do it better either. And it Mm. doesn't mean that Joe Schmo over there is not going to do it better or better. It's like, but what is better? It's just Mm. different is what it is. And so I think it's just adopting different ideas to create different outcomes. Yeah. And, you know, those ideas become part of that process. And I think that whether it suits like Reb said or technology or in business, if it's technology or ideas or, you know, somebody doing something totally innovative and different, mm-hmm. that's part of the process. Mm-hmm. And as long as we can be in that space, then that's healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when you start comparing as if it's supposed to be their way that that's when it becomes unhealthy. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And that, again, it's, it's going to be a process. That's mm-hmm. not going to change. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the world keeps turning and everybody keeps growing. It's just really cool to gather ideas and continue to grow, whether you're an athlete, an entrepreneur, a uh, artist, a uh, engineer for rocket ships or whatever it may be, you know, like yeah. there's always going to be somebody else that's like, you know, so that's, well, one, that's one, the of way. The th- one of the things you guys have got going for you is, is how you've, uh, you've stepped into the, the ability to reinvent yourself. Right. So you've, you spent your whole, you know, adolescence and early adulthood going from practice to performance to mastery and performing at the, the highest level. And then you retire. And I, I wonder if it's, it's weird to, say, to hear yourself use the word retire. Um, but... 
where are all the perks? I know. I know. <laughs> Retirement. Like, you know, you you've got all of this stuff, right? All everything you've worked toward and for, and all of the fanfare associated with that. And then the next day you retire, and the next day all that fanfare and everything is still there, but you're going this way right now. And that's gotta be challenging. I mean, I think it can be challenging. And then there's some people that don't necessarily have a system or a support group or or some way to navigate through that reinvention. But you guys have, and you've made some really great choices. And I think a lot of it has to do with your fascination and and, and mindset to begin with. But I'd love to to hear what some of the building blocks for your reinvention have been. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the transition is beginning to be more talked about, in, which is fantastic because, you know, as an athlete, when you leave your sport, that's usually the first time that you think about transitioning. And uh, certainly, you know, I experienced a very mild and a lot of interesting emotions after my first Olympics in 2008. Um, you know, anytime you're at such an emotional peak and then you come down off of that, it's, it's going to cause a lot of just emotions and thoughts. And, and, you know, in my case, I went back into my final year of NCAA competing at USC and it just, there was nothing quite as exciting. There was nothing quite as compelling. And, and, you know, there was a certain level of, of, you know, almost depression that comes with that. And so once I decided to continue swimming, I, I had an idea that, okay, if I'm done in 2012, I'm going to have to face that again. And it's probably going to be a lot worse, a lot stronger as I'm actually going to be completely finished with swimming. And I didn't have an idea of what I wanted to do afterwards. And I put my whole heart and soul into swimming and my entire, you know, it was a career at that point. So I think, you know, the best thing that I did coming out of, of London and it was certainly very challenging. You know, there were days when I couldn't see a reason to get out of bed. It was just, well, I don't really, you know, I was happy I had my dog because he was my reason. I had to go take for a walk. <laughs> you know, it's just the little things. But the, the one thing that I really do credit myself for as little as I knew in that time was recognizing that I didn't know the next steps and that that was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a time when I, you know, was reaching out to a lot of athletes that gone through this, just talking through it with a lot of people. And Caroline was one of those people because she had retired just a few years before me. And, and, you know, we faced a lot of that process together at the same time. But I think that also, you know, giving yourself the time to grieve uh, for, you know, and, and understanding that losing your purpose is essentially what happened. You know, when you're switching roles, I lost my definition as an athlete and being able to compete um, and show up every day in the structure and the routines and, and essentially my purpose, my purpose until then was to become the best athlete that I could. And, 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 you know, I considered, you know, do I, do I go back to swimming? Because I have a lot of people's giving me feedback that they were not very happy that I wasn't swimming anymore. And, and, you know, what else can you do? What else are you going to do? And and what was your experience transitioning? Oh, gnarly. (laughs) I mean, no, if things are around about it, but 
at the same time, it was also a time that I made new communities. And I, I went into that transition with that exact goal. You know, I retired in 2010 and it was like, I could swim for two more years and I could be on the Olympic team again. And I know I could medal because in an individual event, because I just, those third trials in 2008, I just missed making an individual event. I was like, I know I could do it. But I don't want to. <laughs> and it was like this feeling of like, I know I could, mm-hmm. but I want more out of myself. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what that was. And I had no earthly clue, but I just went for it anyway. And I wanted, it was almost like I wanted to struggle and I mm-hmm. wanted to feel lost again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it was just a feeling of, I, I'm going to crave a community. So what way can I do that? And I went directly into a new community with Lululemon. And that was something that I really valued at the time. Because I was like, Oh my God, I don't know what to do. I just, I, as Reb said, if you lose your identity. You're like, I have no idea who I am. I've had everything told and handed and given to me. <laughs> like incentive wise and outcome wise, mm-hmm. like, here's what you do. This is what you're going for. Boom, boom. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now I had no idea. And mm-hmm. I thought mm-hmm. at the time that I was supposed to have some sort of idea as to like where the finish line was again. Mm-hmm. Like, what am I, what's happening? Mm-hmm. So I, um, I, the community part was great, but I went just through gnarly depression and went to and put myself into therapy for two years. I was like, so distraught over a few things and I had no idea how to handle it. That was very helpful for me personally. And then the other thing that I think was something during the transition that was really difficult for me was I kept chasing, like we talked about, I kept chasing outcomes and achievement. And so I went into different degrees because first of all, I loved what I did. I didn't not love it. I I went into an art, got an art degree and then went and got another degree. <laughs> and, and But I kept thinking that those would make me happy, is my right. point. Like I kept thinking that if I could just get that next credential or get that next thing that like winning, like holler, <laughs> like, you know, crushing life. And that's, it's so opposite because I would get there and then the same thing happened to me at the Olympics or at NCAAs or at Worlds or it didn't matter what meet it was. I'd get that achievement and then I was like, what now? Mm-hmm. And like, for mm-hmm. some reason, I couldn't see that it wasn't about that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so it took mm-hmm. me a really long time to get to that point. And I think this past year in, in particular has been really powerful for both Reb and I in that aspect, because we both got injured. We both had a goal that we didn't achieve because we didn't end up going forward with it. It could have been epic, of course, but we didn't do it because we finally realized like, okay, I'm just going to stop and sit in my shit for just a little bit because I've never actually just like like said no to something to to be healthy for mm. one second, you know? And mm. it was like the hardest thing I think that either of us have done because we've, you know, valued our physical achievements um above a lot of things. And it doesn't mean that you can't. It just was a really good reboot of the system to be like what are you actually what are you grateful for within this process of mm-hmm. building yourself, mm-hmm. whether it's a mm-hmm. race or a job or whatever? So, mm. um, 
yeah, that's like the long, the short of the long of the transition. Thing. Yeah, no, that was, that was awesome. And, and Reb, right before uh, we lost your connection there for, for a moment, you were talking about purpose and how your purpose had, had changed. And I thought that was really powerful because I, I, I believe that we all have, we are born with a unique purpose and capability and, and that the way that we facilitate that purpose changes. So for example, for me, the analogy I use is here's a coffee mug that's got pens in it, right? So it's this coffee mug is doing something, but not necessarily the right thing, right? And, and usually coffee mugs have whiskey and I mean, uh, coffee or, um, tea in them. <laughs> whiskey. Um, and, uh, and, and we often end up feeling like we're walking around life in life with a coffee mug with pens in it, as opposed to a coffee mug actually doing what it's supposed to do. So that sounded like kind of what you were experiencing. Absolutely. And I, you know, having been a few years now into post athletic life, you know, just as important as it is to live with purpose is to allow that purpose to change and, you know, not trying to control back to, you know, what I was talking about, same as when you're racing and allowing things to get into the zone, but same goes with purpose. If we are so adamant that my purpose was swimming and now it's gone or I chose to step away from it, but, you know, but, and, and, you know, Caroline was mentioning what, you know, a race that we planned to do and, you know, it, it fell through, but as as we're sitting in the hindsight, you know, looking back at it, realizing that the reason we got so excited about doing this race again was because we were stepping back into our athletic purpose. And that purpose, as much as we've tried to reshape and we're still in the process of building our purpose as entrepreneurs and as, you know, business leaders and and community leaders for our, our group at Rise, we still have such a strong connected purpose to being athletes that given the chance, we dove into it so fast. And in a way, it was a blessing that both of us got hurt and we were forced to sit on the sidelines and and say, well, wait a minute, you know, would that really have made you happy anyway? That's that's a previous purpose. And um, you know, I remember reading a, a, an amazing book, um, which I'll have to look at the title and send you later, but it was a translation of the Bhagavad Gita or, or like an interpretation of it. It talked a lot about Dharma being like basically your purpose, your path. And and that reading that book was the first time that it talked about your dharma, your dharma, your purpose changes. So, you know, you can't just glue yourself into thinking that this is what I have to be. Um, you know, you become that coffee mug and, and you're cursing the coffee mug for holding your pens for you instead of using it for your coffee. But at the same time, it's already, it's, it's right. moved on. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's progressed mm-hmm. to a new purpose and it's perhaps much better in that way because you see it more often yeah. and you know, yeah. whatever yeah. the analogy goes, but long story short, um, having to accept change as part of your purpose and, and which, you know, brings a lot more excitement to it because if you're told you're just supposed to do one thing your entire life, you know, as Olympians, as elite athletes, we've already achieved a lifetime, I guess, of, of we've succeeded. We've checked off that box and, and we're giving ourselves the permission to move on. And, and, you know, likely the same is going to happen once we, you know, move on to the next phases after building rise and that takes off and goes 
you know, yeah. in its own direction, you know, yeah. but then what, you know, we're not going to glue ourselves right. into this purpose. And is that, either. is some of your experience, some of what you've just shared, the reason why you call your organization rise? I mean, it's a, it, it kind of, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we'll go with that. I wouldn't say it was yeah. meant to be, um, the selection of the name, but you know, in general, we just, we definitely believe that there's more to yeah. each person than just the things that we do. We rise above those things that we do and there's more to us, even if, you know, it's just under, getting a better understanding of who you are on the inside and totally disconnected from what it is yeah. that you do. So um, it certainly is the general trajectory that, that we hold ourselves yeah, to totally. and, and everyone that we work with and bring into our community. When I saw the name, I, I, I just was like, oh my gosh, this is so perfect because of the whole like rising the, the, the athlete out of the person, but also everybody gets knocked down and needs to rise up to step back into their, you know, it's just so many ways that you could use that. It's a beautiful name, you know, and I could personally continue con conversing about all of this amazing stuff for the next like day. But uh, I think we all have things that we all need to, to do. but. Um, I've enjoyed this uh, immensely and I'm grateful to have connected with you both, but I do have three questions that Ooh. I ask of every guest, <laughs> I ask of every guest, uh, whether it's Jocko Willink or, uh, AJ Hawk or you guys. Now I get to ask these three questions of everybody. Actually, before we get to them, I want to make sure that people know where they can connect with you and learn more about you guys and rise. So online, so, um, go ahead and share that. Um, we are rise-athletes.com okay. and, uh, on social media, rise athletes across the board, uh, Instagram, Facebook. And then I believe Twitter is rise underscore athletes, but we don't really use that as much. So just focus on Facebook and Instagram rise athletes across the board, rise-athletes.com for, um, website. And for you, Caroline, because uh, you are you are more active individually on social media than than Reb is. Um, Carol Burkle, so no L, not Carol like my grandma, but Carol. <laughs> what her name really is? Carol C A R O, and then my last name Burkle. Yes. And Reb is Reb Sony, <laughs> so we both yeah. abbreviated the first one. <laughs> nice, nice. And, and Carol will will you'll definitely learn a lot about uh, what both Reb and rise are doing on carol caroline's instagram and it she does a lot of really powerful you know little short blogs about what's going on in her thought life and it's really i want to commend you because i think it's very real and something that's needed to break through the social media noise it's one of the reasons why i admire what you're doing so now for the three questions okay so the first question is if you could pick any skill set and you both you don't have to both answer these questions. So if, if one of you wants to take one and, and the other pass, it's fine too. But the first question is if you could take any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Skill set that I could turn into a superpower. I would say a skill set that I have is um, the ability to connect well with others. And I think that if I could turn that into a superpower, it would be the ability to not fully... You know, I don't know if this is a superpower, but the ability to 
connect without fully taking on every single thing oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that other people have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I don't know if that's a superpower, but yeah. it's, maybe it's just more me speaking about something I'm working on personally. But that would be a good superpower because I think a lot of humans do that because we're compassionate souls and oh, we care. Yeah, totally. I, I've, I've heard it put recently that um, that same thing is called an emotional raincoat. <laughs> yeah, that's you a know. good one. <laughs> Which I get, apparently Los Angeles needs right now. It's raining there for the first time. Um, Reb, did you have anything you wanted to add, or you, or do you want to test the next question? Let's let's test the next question. <laughs> the next question is: uh, What are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing our full potential? One: I need to be like others, and I need to fit in. I have one. I have to do this to show it's kind of similar to show boom this. So Mm -hmm. again, proving yourself, Mm -hmm. I have to do this in order to get this. Mm -hmm. Instead of want the have to instead of the want to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the very broad, I'm not good enough because blah, blah, blah. Yeah. 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 Yeah, those are those are doozies, and we all tell ourselves those those three lies. And the opposites of those, the truths about the the truths of those statements, the opposite of those statements are really powerful if we if we believe them, if we adopt them. And the interesting thing is, and, and we control the narrative of our minds, right? The interesting thing is that it doesn't take much more effort to flip the switch, right, and and go from that negative dialogue to the, the positive truth about ourselves. And yet at the same time, it feels like moving a mountain, you know, to, to do that sometimes. Um, and that goes back to the whole thing about taking, for me, taking myself way too seriously um, and, uh, and, and realizing that, you know, I, I don't need to take on the entire weight of the world. The last question before we send you guys off to creating amazing things is, it comes from the title of a book by a guy named Clay Christensen. And the title is, how will you measure your life? I mean, I feel it's so cliche, my answer, <laughs> but it's, it's the number, you know, not the number, but the amount of, and for me, the amount of impact that I've had on that's not like broadcast to the world, you know, so impact on my closest friends and family for me, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that's my biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think meaning mm-hmm. and what meaning is similar to what she said, what meaning you give to your own rhythm and, and to the rhythm of your closest people in your world, mm-hmm. like the meaning, that connection, like how, how can that be formed mm-hmm. and molded? I love it. I love it. Caro and Reb, thank you so much for spending some time with us today on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Loved the opportunity to visit with you both and look forward to staying in in contact and seeing what great things you do. Thank Thank you. you. The review of the week comes in from a person with the iTunes handle Fight for Life. And this listener says, over the years, I've listened to and referred to dozens of podcasts on how to elevate life and business and integrate them successfully. 
Mike's podcast has become my consistent favorite to listen and refer our friends and business team toward. It is rich and diverse in its guests, and Mike is an exceptional host and interviewer who you can tell is asking questions and guiding conversation with his listeners in mind. There is no value that is missed by the listener, and I appreciate Mike's encouragement to not just be a podcast junkie, but also pull out pen and paper because we get to hear from the best voices out there today. Thank you so much, Fight for Life, for leaving this review. We appreciate you. We appreciate you sending your friends to the show. And if you, my friends, have not left a review on the show, you can do that over at iTunes by heading over there and typing in Mike Flynn in the search bar and an Impact Entrepreneur Show will come up. And you too can leave a review, an honest review of what you think, good, bad, and ugly about the show. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact. Hey, 